This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. And this is the Late Boomers Podcast, our proud first season. Today we are interviewing Maria Contreras-Sweet, whose career has spanned business, government, and philanthropy, and she has found time for marriage and children. She was born in Guadalajara, Mexico, and immigrated to Los Angeles, California. She has since been involved in both the private sector founding a commercial bank, and also in public service, serving as the California Secretary of Business, Transportation, and Housing under Governor Gray Davis. She was the first Latina woman ever to hold that position. And she served in President Barack Obama's cabinet as head of the Small Business Association. A longtime advocate for small businesses and entrepreneurs, Contreras Suite is a champion for diversity and equal opportunity. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. Let's say hello to Maria. Hello, Kathy. Hello, Mary. Hello, Hi. Maria. Thank you for being here with us today. Delighted to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood coming to the U.S. at age five from Mexico and growing up in California as to who in your family influenced you the most? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, I'm very impressed at how well you rolled the R's on my last name. I think you're doing oh. a better job than I am. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, but speaking of language, um, you're right, Kathy. I was uh, I'm a, what I call an American by choice. I was born, as you aptly mentioned, Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. And um, it was a really fascinating story. I would love to write a book about this sometime and maybe I'll implore upon Mary to see if she'll work with me on it. <laughs> the point was that my grandmother was a person of great faith and spirituality, generosity of beauty, just as she embraced humanity. And so as a young girl, she found herself motherless and her father remarried. And so in effect, if I can short, you know, um, uh, short handle this, uh, her life was like Cinderella. And, and so she really wanted to join the convent and, and just start her life on her own. And she showed up at an, a convent and it turned out that in those days, there were so many that wanted into the convent that they of course asked you for your dowry, which she couldn't uh, afford. And so they didn't accept her. Fortunately, she found another orphan gentleman, fortunately for me, I say. And so uh, he too was sort of looking for a path forward. And it's a really beautiful story because they loved each other immediately and were married and started their family. And fortunately, again, for, our, for us was that he uh, was recruited by some friends to work on one of the bridges in the Bay Area. 
And so he worked building bridges. So he immigrated back and forth. So half of their children were born in the States and half were born in Mexico. So when my mother had a bad experience with her father, with her husband, excuse me, she, um, her sisters encouraged her to come to the States, to divorce him and to come to the States. And that's how my mother single-handedly as a single parent came with six children and that's history. That's amazing. What a story. Well, tell us about your first job when you did come to the States. Were you young or did you start, was it after college? Um, I had heard you were manager for the U.S. Census Bureau and that was your first job. Well, um, you know, it depends how you define first, right? In, in other words, um, for me, my very, and that's why I believe in entrepreneurship so much because I was young um, we bought our flowers from the local florist. My very first, first job was making bows for the family florist shop, family owned florist shop in the neighborhood. My second kind of, you know, would you call first job where I really had real hours and was a family owned jewelry store in town. And so my first real jobs were that, um, much later than indeed, then that was, um, Again, Jimmy Carter day, so I'm dating myself. And, uh, and it, was, it was time to count America. And so I heard about these census jobs that you could get hired by the federal government and count Americans. And, and there was an effort underway to encourage Americans to be counted. Because of course, we all know that the census determines what our per capita uh, eligibility is for federal funding of so many programs. And as a result, um, I was hired to become a district manager for the U.S. Census Bureau. And so it was quite an exciting operational managerial experience for me to be able to uh, be given a budget to hire 900 people in a very short period of time and build up an office, train, so you have to test them, you know, the, give them the federal test, train them, and then deploy them throughout your region to make sure that they're bringing back all of these census surveys and then add everything up, produce your reports, and shut this operation down. So it's really, you're right. It was my first test at real managerial um, effectiveness and a lot of lessons learned. And you were in your early 20s doing that, right? I was very proud that we came in under budget on time and uh, we were just so resourceful to the extent that the White House came. Uh, they actually sent some of the White House folks to come out and say, who is this young lady who is running this operation? Did it so effectively. I came in early. Our count was deemed one of the best counts. It inured to California an extra co congressional seat. And so by all measure, it was a successful effort. And I was very proud of that initiative. Wow. A look into your future. And then yeah. after that, you joined the uh, 7-Up uh, RC Bottling Company? Well, from that, uh, you get the visibility. You, I was able to, however, you know, the design is that you're doing quite a bit of public speaking to encourage people to be counted. And so you're at town halls and the Rotary Club. And along the way, I met my uh, different representatives, Assembly, Senate, uh, the governor's office, staff people. And so, yes, the local senator was the one who gave me a job, and that was my first government job. And there I was helping to design legislation to respond to constituency concerns. 
And it was where 7-Up Westinghouse, Westinghouse owned the 7-Up Bottler in the community. Uh, and they came to ask us about a particular legislation that was moving through the legislative hopper. And so uh, I met them, helped them, guided them, and they seemed to be pleased with my level of service. And so they recruited me away and that was my entry into corporate America as a, ah. as a manager in, in Westinghouse. And, and really Westinghouse was such a great training ground for me because they believed in training their employees. They had a really extensive program in Pittsburgh. They call it the Westinghouse Education Center. And so that's where I took you know, extra math and uh, balancing the budget, how to write a description. The difference between a manager, a director, a vice president, a coordinator, a supervisor, and how to discern the responsibilities and design job descriptions. I mean, I learned so much. It was really the basis of every bit of whatever I completed thereafter, I owe it all to the training I received at Westinghouse. Wow. That's amazing to hear because you hear the opposite in nowadays, right? What do you mean by the opposite? I mean, they, so many places do not train their employees. Oh, yes. Yeah, Westin, well, things are changing. You're right. Things are changing. But then there was a lot of investment in their employees because it was, and you remember in those days, we had a long-term commitment to our employer. We, you know, it was assumed that you were going to make your career out of, uh, you know, out of, uh, whatever opportunity you were given. And so of course now today's, you know, we're now today's uh, kids, they, they don't see the same level of commitment. And I don't, I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm not judging it. I'm just saying that you're right. We approached our jobs back then as though we were going to be there for the rest of our life. Tell us about your position in California government under Governor Gray Davis. I know you must have some fantastic stories about that. <laughs> Can you imagine? I was just, as you say, you know, minding my business, raising my family, focused on life. And uh, I received a call from a governor that I had not been involved in. I wasn't involved in his campaign, wasn't involved in helping him. And I had known enough about politics to know that so many people believe in the platform of an elected official. And so they volunteer and they help. But others, sometimes get involved because they aspire to attaining a certain job in that new, you know, elected office. And, uh, and so there are so many people competing for certain jobs when a governor gets into office. And I was not really engaged in that, privy to that. Uh, and so when I received a call from the governor, I was actually out at dinner on a Friday night with my family. And I received a call and, you know, you get at the other end on your cell phone, it's, this is the governor calling. Governor-elect, I'll say. Um, and he said, we'd like to see you this weekend. Could we meet? Be and I said, well, what would this be about, sir? And he said, we'd like to talk to you about, um, we want to, we want to, we are considering the women appointments we intend to make. So I was so charged. I have to tell you, I thought this is my opportunity to present all the resumes of my girlfriends. I know medical, you know, doctors, I know scientists, I know uh, business people, corporate women. And so I, I actually pulled my, you know, in those days, we actually had Rolodex. And so I pulled all these names together, just thinking when he asked me about commission appointments or permanent appointments, I'm going to be ready. I want to make sure the really qualified, competent, experienced people get into these jobs. And so I sat down with him and he said, 
uh, I have a cabinet position that I'd like to fill. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's going to be hard to, you know, who am I going to produce for that? And he said, I'd like for you to consider being my secretary of transportation, secretary of housing, and the chief regulator of our state's businesses. And it's all wrapped into one agency and you would have 45,000 employees and you would have a budget of $14 billion. I thought I was going to faint. <laughs> and this uh, is all on the phone at dinner. Well, he gave me a little, a little bit of just recruiting women, but when I actually showed up Sunday at brunch, he and Sharon, uh, the governor and his wife, the first lady, Sharon, then this is where I received the elaboration that I just outlined. And, uh, and they offered me that position and I was overwhelmed, quite frankly. I was overwhelmed at different levels. One about, was I ready to be, right? So many women, so many of us always talk about the imposter syndrome. And we don't believe that we're ready for the next opportunity. And so there was some of that in me. And there was also some of um, how did it become that I was his choice? And third was the balancing of the children. Uh, what would I do with my career in the trajectory to go up into senior management? Um, so there was a lot to consider. How did you manage that, having children and a husband, a married life, and managing 45,000 people? <laughs> uh, you know, I, um, a couple of things I'll say, because I think that it is important to, to be really frank and candid about these things. We need to help each other out. Um, and I will tell you that for me, one of the things that I felt was, I want to do what matters with my children. I want to make certain that I am reading at night with them. I want to make certain that I'm having dinner with them. I want to know that I'm tucking them into bed and saying prayers every evening. I want to know that my husband and I can have a conversation about how our day went, you know, at the end of the day. But what I don't feel that I need to do is I don't need to be the one that mops the floor. I don't need to be the one that dusts the house down. I don't need to be the one that organizes our closets. And so I sort of drew the things, I drew that line and said, I can have somebody come into my house to do these things that don't connect with my children. And I will do the things that are vitally connected to my children. And so I think sometimes if we relieve ourselves of some of those responsibilities, it frees up so much time and guilt and so much of the other. And then of course, the second other piece of it is that we as women understand the importance of having social networks so that my neighbors and my girlfriends were an important resource. They would help carpool and pick up Francesca and Rafael and Antonio for soccer and take them to piano and to dance. And, and so, you know, we just, we have to become resourceful. We know how to do it as young kids. We have to do it as women. And that's what I did. Um, was just try to understand what was really important for my family's vitality and well-being and what was secondary. Did you have to move to Sacramento to do that job? Well, I, that's really interesting that you asked me that question because what I didn't anticipate was exactly that point. I didn't understand that as an agency cabinet member, as a cabinet member on the governor's cabinet, that I had to live in the cap, not in the cap, you know, but yeah, in Sacramento and be there nine to five, Monday through Friday. And so it was, that was probably the toughest part, I will tell you, was um, getting up so early, you know, just at the crack of dawn and getting on that first flight out up to Sacramento from Los Angeles on Monday, and then taking the 
six o'clock flight home on Friday night. So uh, a lot of that tucking in that I described for those four years, five years that I was there, um, my tucking in happened over the phone. The prayers were over the phone. And sometimes after I hung up, I did feel overwhelmed by emotion because I just felt I was missing so much of my children's lives. And I'll just tell you this one little story. I was home one weekend and in September is when the legislature begins to send their bills to the governor's office for signing. And so we worked 24 seven to get these bills with the, we, we put a, a cabinet members put a little note on top of the governor's recommended, whatever the legislature does. We put, you know, like we recommend veto for these reasons. We recommend a signing of this bill for these reasons. And so the governor expects his cabinet member of each topic, if it's a something around healthcare or education, in my case, infrastructure, uh, business and housing, um, transportation, that I would make a recommendation to him as to what I wanted him to do on that bill. They, of course, then have their own, you know, thoughts about it. So it's a 24 seven, because sometimes when you write a note, they'll pick up the phone and they'll say, what did you mean by this or elaborate? Or why don't you want me to sign this bill? And so it was a weekend and it was in that time frame. Uh, and so he was calling incessantly. <laughs> it was just, we were getting calls through dinner in the evening because he has 30 days and if he doesn't sign them by them, then they automatically become law. And you, you get hundreds of bills. And so every cabinet member is on duty 24 seven. So we were getting these calls incessantly. And my daughter being, uh, at that time, I'm trying to think she might've been about 12, 13 years old. And she just looked at me and she just said, mom, we miss you so much. And it's been a couple of years now. You know, can you quit? Can we, you know, we'd love to have you back. And the guy that I was most worried about was little Antonio because he was five. And he just looked at her and he scolded her. And he said, Francesca, what mom is doing is so important. We have to support her. And it was just the sweetest little thing, you know, to see. I don't know why I'm getting emotional now. But it oh, was, you're making me cry. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of those moments that I just thought he gets it. You know, he totally, totally gets it. And it was just the sweetest thing to know. And then Francesca just sighed and she said, you're right. And thereafter, they were all in and they were so supportive. And I, I didn't mean to get emotional, but it was just a really sweet moment in our relationship. Oh, and, and your husband must have really stepped up to do all the stuff, be the mother and the father during that period too. Well, that's why I think it was so hard on Francesca because naturally she, you know, she was a big help to him. You know, yes, he stepped up enormously and I, and I will eternally be grateful to him for it. But yes, each of the children sort of, you know, matured. And what was really uh, another telling thing about raising your children is sometimes as parents, we think that they don't hear us, that they don't listen, that they're not minding. But during that stage, we saw that the older two really became secondary parents to the, our third. And, and we were watching and they were parroting us. It was so sweet. I'd see Raphael saying, Antonio, you can't do this because you know, you know, you know, if you don't have this first, just everything that we always admonish them for, they were now admonishing their little brother for. And I said, you know, it's stuck, you know, right? It's stuck. It worked. Yeah. Hmm. Awesome. Oh, and not to switch tracks, if you have more about the kids, throw it in any time. But we did want to ask you about founding your bank, Pro-America Bank. And it was the first Latino-founded bank in over 35 years, right? 
Well, the thing is for me, um, the way I thought about, um, I don't take things for granted. You know, I, you know, we all have to fight for the little that, you know, that we have uh, acquired for our family, for our children. And I've always been struck by, I don't know how to define this. Maybe I'll call them gatekeepers. Uh -huh. But in life, there are gatekeepers, right? There are people who, um, there are people, for example, the bank to me, it's like, how does the bank decide, you know, if, if, we're, if we're lending based on credit, uh, you know, just um, character, you know, they call it the five C's. Um, how do they determine your, your, um, your credibility, you know, your ability to pay back. And so I always think about sometimes, you know, historically we learned that women are often discriminated against and that we weren't getting the same level of credit that the, our men counterparts were getting. And so I saw banks as sort of being like one more set of gatekeeping. It was like women, people of color, not everybody was getting credit at the same level at the same rate. And that frustrated me. And I saw that in government, you know, that um, when Caltrans would build a highway, I always saw that in some parts of the communities, the highways had four lanes in each direction. And in some communities, they had two lanes in each direction. And so the way I've approached my life is to say, how do I democratize these gateways? How do I open them up and make sure that everybody has equal opportunity to access the generosity or, or the resources of our government. That's how I saw the work that I had at BTH, at Business Transportation Housing Cabinet position. I would say, you know, there are, there are communities uh, that are rural. There are communities in secondary and tertiary communities. Like, you know, we understand San Francisco, LA, San Diego are gonna get their fair share of highways, but it may be that Oxnard doesn't. It may be that Merced doesn't. It may be that and so, and so, I mean, for somebody that doesn't know these communities, you know, it was the, the big cities, right, are going to fight, they're going to be resourced well to advocate for their fair share of resources. But sometimes smaller cities, smaller towns don't have the same advocacy ability. And so I tried to dispense with the largesse of government as equally as I could per capita. And that's why the census was an important training for me to understand where the people were, what they needed, how many libraries, what were the public facilities in each town. And I tried to be as responsive, to reach out to these communities to say, we have, we have the facility to help you and let us help you even if you don't know how to ask us to help you. We're here to help. And, and so I realized that you know, who the gatekeeper is in the resources is really important and their view and their philosophy of things and their sense of democracy and their sense of being a value-laden person. Because I saw some communities were just neglected. They weren't even getting their fair share. And so in large measure, when I tried, um, Kathy and Mary, to incorporate more women and more local people into contracting with me to build the bridges, to build the highways, to do the work that I needed to do, uh, we agreed that we would spend around 25% with smaller businesses to make sure that women and local, local family businesses could get part of this work. So that when I was uh, launching the initiative to build the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, 
the Canadians showed up, the Spaniards, the French, everybody wanted to build the three, $4 billion bridge I was about to let out as a contract. And I thought instead of putting out one contract and letting some big uh, global company come in to build it for me, what if I debundle the work, break it down into smaller parts and have someone come in and say, I'll do the piles for you. And then I will do this part for you. And I'll do the outreach and I'll do the communications and we'll set up the road signs. And so if you break it down, then you give an opportunity to smaller and smaller businesses to apply for this work naturally. And in that effort is where I learned the role of banks because so many, particularly women were coming to me to say, I can't get bonded. I can't get funded to be able to manage the cash flow that I need because government takes 90 days to pay. And I need to pay the workers. I need to pay for the you know, resources that I need. And that's when I felt my exit strategy had to be to build a bank that would become a fair gatekeeper of who could access capital. That is an amazing story. What the background to it. Yeah, and it sounds like you were really prepared. Every job that you've had preparing you for your cabinet position in Washington as head of the Small Business Association. Tell us about that and tell us how your your past and your all the jobs that you had led up to that. Uh, well, uh, first of all, it's the Small Business Administration. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> the government office, and so it's the, uh, the Small Business Administration, the USSBA. Um, but it, you're right. Um, I then, it is one of the hardest things to, in terms of building a small business. I thought licensing a restaurant would be difficult, but, but starting a bank, you know, writing the business plan, writing, hiring uh, an effective credit underwriter, a CFO, uh, the bank president, um, and all of the underwriters, your business development officers, and the licensing. You know, you are taking people's life savings. You have safety boxes, their deposits. And so the regulatory screen through which you have to go to be given a bank charter is very, very complex. It's a very extensive process. And so it took me two years from thought to execution and actually opened the doors to this bank. And I, you know, I built a balance sheet as quickly as I could, putting out as many loans, marketing, everything that one could imagine. And then the downturn happened. And so we opened up in 2006 and 2008, we had the downturn and all of a sudden, everybody's business was going down and I was concerned that our, all these loans would default when I had raised money from friends and family and everybody that I knew to finance this bank. And I just thought I have an obligation to make sure that I lose none of my friends capital. And so we hunkered down and I did what I did in state government. I met with each one of my clients and said, let's, let's look at your portfolio. If you are a restaurant, maybe in, in addition to, making meals for the local traffic. Maybe we could get you a contract with a, a city office and maybe you could take them sandwiches every day. Like how do we diversify your market? How do we expand your view of the market? And so we did a lot of work around those areas. And amazingly, I will tell you that watching big, big banks like Wachovia, watching, well, you know, this is running nationally, but watching national and local regional banks default 
was quite alarming. So we just, we just focused on helping, 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 providing marketing resources, everything. And, um, and so we prevailed. We never took TARP, what they call TARP. You know, we never took financial governmental assistance. And we came out of that really well capitalized and were able to continue growing. And so um, I was very proud of our team, our effort, and that we were at DeNova. We were a brand new, tiny little bank, you know, and we were still able to keep it together considering these large financial institutions couldn't. And so, yes, it caught the attention, I imagine, because we're federally regulated. And I have no idea how one thing leads to another, but just like that call from the governor's office to receive a call from the White House saying that the president wanted me in the Oval Office to have a conversation with me was quite a jarring and life-altering, to say the least. I can imagine. And, and what happened from there? Um, well, he, I wasn't sure exactly what the conversation was going to be about, but I, I imagined, you know, that he probably wanted me to come in and be a part of his administration. And so when he offered me the opportunity to join his cabinet, uh, for me, you have to remember that, you know, as I started the top of, the of this uh, podcast, that I'm, you know, I'm an immigrant. And here I was sitting in the Oval Office being asked to serve in the president's cabinet, regardless of what party you are, um, it is still, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a supreme experience of, you know, little comparison and so i was taken in of course by the opportunity but mostly again if i i felt at first blush my intention was to say i've already served what i call a tour of duty has spending five years as a state cabinet member in the fifth largest economy in the world there are only four countries that had a budget bigger than than ours and that was you know the united states right being one of them and so um and so California really is a massive economic power. And I really, you know, didn't feel the urge to serve in government again. You don't make, I mean, you don't do that for financial remuneration, right? You don't go into government yeah. for that. And so, um, so I finally now had built this bank. I had so many of my friends and family invested in it. So it was at a personal level, a very, um, big commitment he was asking me to make because I'd have to divest from the bank. And uh, after all that work and finally being on the road to success, uh, as flattering as it was, it still was a very difficult personal decision. And again, leaving my family again, um, that would be tough. But I thought about the gatekeeper philosophy that I maintained and thinking I still owed a great, a great debt of gratitude to this country for the experiences I had had, the success I had had. And so I signed up for my second tour and accepted. And um, I wanted to make sure that I could, again, do the same kind of thing. Take what I was doing at the bank, which is an important platform for me, but make that a universal systemic platform. And I found that to be a very important body of work. To, when you think of, and I know that you get this, small businesses create two out of every three net new jobs in America. Two out of every three net new jobs of private sector jobs come from small business. Corporations play an important role, but the growth is coming from our small businesses. 
And I, because I had been helped my family, my mother, and my first jobs were all small business, I have such an allegiance and respect and admiration for anybody who starts a family business and, uh, and provides for their family the uniqueness of their cookies, of their, the beauty shop, the local restaurant, the boutique shop. Small businesses just define a community. Small businesses represent the very best of us. And they, to me, epitomize America. It's about entrepreneurship. It's about innovation. It's about hacking and disrupting and, you know, coming up with something new and the blood, sweat, and tears and be able to access capital and make something out of nothing. And so it's so American to me. And I just thought the fact that I could represent and be the voice for America's business in the world would be something that was just irresistible to be able to be in that position and travel the world and do that work. And you were able to travel and meet a lot of small business entrepreneurs in other countries during that position, right? Well, the, the, thing, the thing was, again, for me, I still wanted to do the work that I'd done at my bank, um, expand markets. And it has uh, been noted, and I recognize that 99% of the world's consumers are outside of the United States. So as large as the U.S. is, 99% of the population of the world's consumers are outside of the United States. And so how can we think about having success in a small business if we forget about that market. So I wanted to open markets. I wanted to make sure that somebody in Ohio could connect with somebody in Colombia, could connect with somebody in Estonia, could connect with somebody in Morocco and do business with them. And with the globalization of business through the, via the internet, we all have an unlimited marketplace. And so to establish relationships, we led missions, we did work, but that's one side of it. The other side of it is that you have to make sure that you have a viable democracy in that country so that they too can have businesses that will, and people who have the ability to buy your product. They have to have disposable income, discretionary income to be able to buy your product. And so you have, so I feel we have an obligation as a, leading global power to help deepen democracy in those countries so that they too can expand their capital capacity. And we can, you know, Henry Ford said it better than I'm saying it right now. He said, what good is it to be able to build a car if nobody can afford to buy it? He understood that his employees needed to be paid a living wage, a good wage, so that they'd be able to buy his product and that would make the company more successful. And so he had to pay his employees well, and they need to be healthy and well-educated. And that's what we have to understand, right? That in order for us to have customers in the world, we need to make sure that they are healthy and educated and economically viable. And so there were two parts to our effort. One was, yes, the missions to connect to people, but also to teach them entrepreneurship so that they too could expand their economy and deepen democracy so that you don't have people who are looking for illegal way to make money and provide for their family. And so, uh, so we did that work around the world. It was uh, very exciting to, to go to Cuba and to try to help them understand our way of life so that they could you know, maybe take some lessons from that. And um, uh, you know, in Colombia, I met, I'll just tell you very quick, I met a, a gentleman who was 50 years old 
And this gentleman at 50 years old said he had never had a day of peace in his country because for 50 years they had been fighting this FARC, the, um, the uh, uh, group that was um, trying to take down the government. And so, you know, by engaging and supporting them, eventually they were able to cease fire and created peace. And I remember when he came up to Stanford and we visited and he said it was the first day of peace in his life. You know, to see that happen, to see the, the reform that's taking place in Colombia, it's, uh, it's, it's very gratifying. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And we have a lot of listeners that are small business owners. Do you have any advice for them right now when, it, when it's such a difficult time because of the pandemic and so many people are struggling to keep their businesses going? Is there any hope you can offer or I, I don't know? Well, I think, um, I think for all of us, because I do have so much respect and understand the vital role that they play, um, and so, and understanding the, the um, vulnerability of our small businesses, our study showed when I was in office showed that after 30 days of being shut down, remember that um, SBA, the US SBA also has an office of economic um, recovery. We have an office of disaster assistance. And so we go in, if there's been a tornado or hurricane, we go into communities and provide, you know, they're called the idle loans, the economic injury disaster loan assistance programs. And so um, we go into communities to provide these loans in, in disaster, times of disaster. So we study to see how quickly we have to do that and how much, how long we have to help. Uh, and what we learned is that after 30 days of being shut down, 25% of those businesses may not be able to come back up and make up for it. They lose their employees, the capital that they lost in trying to you know, keep it together for 30 days, the least they have to pay. Sometimes they don't have that much cash flow. So after 30 days, 25% of those businesses largely probably will not come back. After 90 days, our studies show that 50% of those businesses may not be able to come back online. So this pandemic is frightening to me and its duration because it's really, um, it's, it's gonna be a real tough thing to get our small businesses back up and running. So if you ask me what I would say, I would ask everyone within the sound, within the reach of our voice to do anything they can to support a small business, to, you know, to order out, you know, to order takeout and you know, from your local favorite restaurant to keep them viable to call your boutique and ask them to, you know, put a little shirt and send it to you or that you'll go pick it up at the, you know, on a, if they have a drive-through. You've got to support these businesses because they are neighbors. They're the ones that sponsor the local baseball, you know, kids team, Pee Wee's team. Uh, and so I would just urge anybody to do everything they possibly could to support the small businesses. And I would ask the small businesses, even though I'm not there, to reach out to look up where their local small business development center is in America. I don't know that we, obviously we don't have them in Canada, but in, in the US, there is a regional small business development uh, office. They're called SBDCs, the Small Business Development Center. And I would urge people to call there and to ask about what resources they have. They help you write their plan. They help you think about how to access new customers. Uh, they'll tell you about the resources that are available through banks and through the government. And this is the time 
to not have pride, but to reach out to everybody that you can for ideas to make sure that your family pulls through, just like my little bank pulled through, um, and can be enduring and come back online and continue to prosper. That's some great advice. Thank you very much. Tell us about HOPE, or is it H-O-P-E, and the uh, California Endowment? Wow, you guys did your homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a lot going on. Well, I, uh, again, I, um, I was serving on the board of a healthcare company at the time, um, back in my early days. It was the first time I was asked to serve on a corporate board and so I was so uh, just feeling the challenge of how I could make a difference as a board member on a corporate board, because I always heard about women wanting to get on corporate boards. It was sort of like, once you get there, what are you supposed to do there? And so I thought, I can't go on and just to be here. It's not enough. To, you know, my grandmother used to say, it's not the titles you have. It's what you do with the titles you have. And so I take her advice to heart. And so I would say, what could I do? And I just kept thinking about all the people who didn't have access to health care. This was before Obamacare. And so there wasn't a mandate. And, um, and I knew that that was a challenge. And so I sat down with the chairman one day after one of our board meetings and just said, what, are, what is the good that we can do? Yes, I understand we sell health care policies and that we make money. We're making shareholders, you know, who are sometimes people pensions, you know, it's their pension. And, and I understand that building shareholder value is, is important, but is there a double bottom line? I believe in a double bottom line. And so he was such a strong leader and we, he believed in the same things. And so we set out to set aside $3 billion out of Blue Cross to endow this fund nonprofit foundation that would be established to help improve the health status of Californians because this was a California company. And it is still enduring and it's still doing good work and it's doing research and it's providing grants and helping rural communities. And uh, I'm really proud of that undertaking because it, the regulatory scheme, the legal scheme to do all of this, we had to go through a conversion and I won't get into all the, you know, the corporate strategies to make this happen, but it was very, very complicated. But um, I'm really proud of that organization. And they have this thing where they bring in um, the founding directors uh, every so often and give us progress reports. And I just beam with pride, great pride. You still go in? Yeah, I still see, well, not, not right now, but generally I still have a relationship with them. And they did so many things that again, I, you know, that the board, everybody agreed. So I, I'm not taking credit for this because it was an entire, you know, board that agreed to do this work. But sometimes foundations, I don't, I, there's no point in naming any, you can't find them. The only way you can ask for a grant is they invite you to ask them. Foundation and philanthropy is, is um, again, gatekeeping, how you access it, who gets a grant, how it's not transparent. And yet they're nonprofits. These are nonprofits and our taxes are supporting them. So I always feel when I hear about family foundations and these philanthropic large organizations, I say, why aren't they more transparent? And so I, so again, the same principles apply here. And I just thought, how do we get this new foundation to be transparent and not to be on a hill that I can't access, that the public can't access. 
So we put this foundation right at the metro station where people can pull right up and access it. We put the offices in a building where there was like the three other sides of the building would be for people to come in and get reduced rent uh, office uh, space. And so that they'd be around people and be touching people every day and stay close to the people. And we put people from physically challenged veterans, seniors, youth on the board so that you wouldn't have to supplicate that, that, that there would be a, that there would be a sort of a, a, you know, an understanding because the board would represent America. And so- What the, year did you start that? Oh my goodness. Now you want to date me on top of everything. Well, no, I just wondered because I, I just want to get a frame of reference for how long it's been going. Now. Yeah, uh, it's Googleable, but I did this before. I was still, um, but it was before I went into BTH. So it would have been like in the 90, it'd have been like 90, 94, in those years we were working on that. Yeah. Right. Oh, it's enduring. It will be there forever. It will be, a, a, it'll be. Very interesting. Foundations are only required to give away 5% of their corpus. And so if you make, uh, well, I won't get into that, but um, it should be an enduring foundation. Yeah. So what are you working on now? And what do you see yourself working on in the future? Uh, I love your, you guys are good. Um, <laughs> I, um, you may recall that I, um, one area where I felt that women were not was in the entertainment industry. And so I know that both of you appreciate this. And so I felt, well, I've kind of gone into government and transportation and housing and banking and, you know, entrepreneurship, accessing capital. And I felt another area that's just tough to get into and not that many women were in charge. And so it was hard for women to get into the business of it, not into the acting side of it, but the business side of it. And so I made an attempt to buy a massive studio. Well, one of the smaller studios, I should say, but for me, it seemed massive. Um, and so we made a bid. We put up a bid to buy the Weinstein company, the studios. And um, honestly, it was such an incredible ride. that That's another story all it's on its own. But I will just say that when I heard that Lionsgate, when I heard that um, Colony Capital, all these big financial players in the industry were making attempts to acquire it, I thought, what chance do I, you know, little Maria have to compete effectively against this? But I thought, you know what, I can't blink. I am not gonna blink. And so I drafted a letter that said the reasons why I felt I should acquire it and how I would run it differently than what they've done. And I said, I would have um, I would make sure that the employees were all kept intact. I would, I had five principles and I said, one, to keep the employees employed, that I would make sure that the small businesses that were their, their uh, supply chain would be, would be able to recuperate, that I wanted to make sure that there was a woman majority board and that I wanted to make sure that uh, there would be a fund to keep the, or to, not to keep, but to uh, somehow find some way to have the victims of the abuse feel that they were recognized. And so I said that we would create a fund that they could apply to and that we would um, help disperse some resources to them. And fifth, that it would be run by a woman. And so, um, so those were my principles. And 
honestly, I cannot tell you to this day how that happened. But the next thing I knew was that my, the points of my letter were in the Wall Street Journal and then the New York Times and then in the Los Angeles Times and then the London Times and then the Irish Times. And it just became an international story that this woman was trying to buy this studio. And, uh, and so it received quite a bit of momentum. So to my great surprise, um, Bob Weinstein called me and said, um, he just said, you know, it sounds like the letters that we're getting, they were overwhelmed. Bob is the brother, Harvey's brother, by the way. Uh, and so they, they said that they were overwhelmed by women around the world writing them letters saying that, you know, he had to sell to a woman. If he was going to sell to anybody, he had to sell to a woman. And so he gave me the exclusive to come in and conduct our due diligence. And, um, well, once we got in there, we just didn't see the value that we thought for the $500 million he wanted, that there was, um, there was enough value for that. And so we backed out of the deal. And as it turns out, we were right because the, the thing disintegrated eventually. But um, so that's what I'm doing to answer your question is we're now, uh, we've been working on building a fund and we read scripts and we want to continue to tell stories from a new lens, a new prism. So you're oh, starting your wonderful. own production company or studio? Well, it's a, it's a fund where we would fund initiatives. Um, we would fund those who want to produce content. So there's less and less difference between a studio and a fund these days because essentially the studios are funding projects. But um, so I still have a deep interest in that. That is so wonderful. I didn't know you were really getting heavy into entertainment now. That's going to be wonderful. Do you want to tell any other highlight story from your time in Washington? Well, um, you know, I'm a practicing Catholic. And so one of the things that, you know, a Catholic would aspire to is to someday, you know, touch the ring of the Pope. And I, I recall thinking when I was going to go into the president's Oval Office, I just thought, I wonder, usually a president gets to travel to meet different heads of state. And I always wondered, you know, would my president go to meet the Pope? And if so, could I hitch a ride? And so, um, and so it was always in the back of my mind. And I asked my husband, I said, do you think it would be all right if I asked Barack Obama, if I could, you know, if that ever happened, could I go along? But I didn't, I just didn't think it was appropriate when I met Barack Obama. And so I never asked the question. But um, as it turns out, he knew I was a Catholic. He knew my life story. And so, um, so anyway, so the point is that sure enough, well into my service there, we heard that uh, the Pope would be visiting the United States. And I was just sort of imagining what that would be like. And I heard he was going to Pennsylvania, you know, and, and maybe New York. And I just thought, oh, how, would the, how could I work that? And so you can imagine when I received this beautiful envelope from the White House and it said that he would be hosting, that the president would be hosting the Pope and that I was invited to a breakfast reception and that I would be able to sit in the audience where the Pope would be addressing members of Congress and, and the White House officials. And so I was so fortunate because my seating was so perfect and I was so close to him and I felt his spirit and then after the reception was over, I 
the gift of a lifetime, I was tapped on the shoulder and they said, come into the green room. The president wants to see you in the green room. And so I dashed into, and some of us were invited into the green room. And I saw our secretary of state, they put us in a line and our secretary of state went into a room and I just thought, I wonder where he went. And then the next person, the secretary of defense, and I just thought, how come they're taking us in one? And so of course you can imagine, I walked in and I was introduced privately by the president of the United States to the Pope. And it was just, uh, it was a glorious moment for sure. Yeah, that had to be a huge highlight for you. And let's wrap up and thank our guest, Maria Contreras-Sweet. This has been an engaging and informative discussion and we hope you've all enjoyed it. You can find Maria on Twitter at mcontreras-sweet or on her website, contrarasuite.com. And please look us up on lateboomers.biz and shoot us an email. That's L-A-T-E-B-O-O-M-E-R-S dot B-I-Z. Thank you again, Maria. Yes, Maria, thank you. And we will see you all on our next episode. for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers, eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve one million dollars in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network.
That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.